I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Midweek FA Cup replays? We're going to skip them. In fact, we're recording this show a day early. The next round of the Premier League is just that important. One versus three at the Emirates, two versus four at the Etihad. If the surprise stories leading the Premier League maintain their form, the carnage at the top of the world's most popular league will be cleared up come Sunday. Welcome, everybody, to the midweek edition of the World Soccer Talk podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. Round 26 of the Premier League season will be our focus in the second half of the show. But first, me and my co-host, Nipun Chopra, have come together to to talk about the few things that have happened in the last two days since myself and Kartik Krishnayar were here on Sunday with the review show. And Nipun, let's start on Merseyside. Yeah. Everton is moving closer to, I guess, what we can call a long-awaited takeover. There's news that former San Diego Padres owner John Moores is inching toward a $290 million move to take over the club. So let's just start very generally. Good move? Bad move? What's your feeling on this one? Well, my first feeling is that Ken Wright gets a lot of criticism, and sometimes it's a little unfair. I think mm-hmm. I think he's, he's, he's a good owner. Uh, and in fact, um, I just listened to an interview that uh, that was, I think it was from The Guardian. I think there was an interview with Martinez where he said as much. He said, Ken Wright is a good owner. And if, if the take, I don't think he said in these words, but essentially what he was saying was if the takeover happens, it'd be because Ken Wright decides that these people are reliable, that they have the, that the club, club's best interest at heart because Ken Wright sure does. Mm-hmm. I think I told you before I used to live in San Diego. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah. You told me. Uh, yeah, I spent about 15 years in San Diego, and for most of the time I was there, I think maybe all the time I was there, John Moores was the owner of the Padres. Uh, yeah. He's a man who's whose riches come from the technology sector. He used to, I believe, be the CEO or the owner of Qualcomm. Uh, and one of the things that he did there, the Padres were always very economically stable, even though they were one of the smaller financial clubs in Major League Baseball. But he got the Padres into a downtown stadium in San Diego, uh, got worked the political system, got that built right in the middle of downtown, got them out of Qualcomm Stadium, which is the big NFL stadium. So obviously that has a parallel with Everton, who right. have this eyesore of Goodison Park that they're playing in. And if they can bring somebody in that has that kind of experience of going through that process, that would be something that really helps the club. The stadium thing is interesting to me. I, I, this hits close to home for me. I, I know I'm comparing the NASL to Premier League Soccer, which is a ridiculous comparison. But... <laughs> Uh, the fact of the matter is, we just had a uh, recent issue where we um, Peter Wilt, who was our GM, has moved of, on. Of and, Indy Eleven. Of Indy Eleven, correct? Not of Everton. Uh, was yeah. 
Uh, I bet Peter would love to take over at Everton. I think he'd do a good job. He'd do a good job anywhere. But the uh, point is that we've come to the point in, in world football now where the idea of getting someone in just for a stadium is a realistic thing. Mm-hmm. Because the, the, the issues with the stadium, you, you and I both have read expa- extensively, I'm sure, on the economics of what stadiums bring. and At least uh, here in the United States, yeah. At least in the United States, that's true. Uh, but at the same time, the, the source of a source of pride for a stadium cannot be underestimated for for loyal fan base. I know it's gone good. There have been good examples of it and bad examples of it, like moving from a Highbury to Emirates and everything that that entails. But I think that the, your idea about the stadium and how well it's how well Moore's got the stadium deal done for the Padres is a good one. Now, I guess let me ask you this: Is that one area that parameter of getting a new stadium enough to generate to generate interest enough to get this new management or do you think and this is what i think that management has to be the ownership has to be thinking more in terms of what they will do with the team uh, what they will do with the manager what they will be what their goals are are they going to stay in the top 4 and that sort of thing i wonder if everton you can even separate it out like that because goodison has gotten to a place where the the revenue flows of Everton are so hampered by not having even an antiquated stadium. We talk about modern stadiums right. where you have like Arsenal who had to invest so many of the club resources to right. build this venue. So long, yeah. Yeah, but now obviously it's a major revenue generator, probably to some people's disdain that is generating a lot of ticket revenue the way that they do. Everton seems to be three or four generations behind that. And so they're at the point where they're significantly hamstrung. They're the prestige that the club has as one of the what is they probably like one of the six or seven most successful clubs in English football history. It's totally constrained by their lack of actual capital resources. So I I wonder if you really can separate the two. I wonder if it is so important that a new venue gets done in order for them to continue competing in the Premier League that that they have to do this. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Uh, it will be interesting. It'll be another set of American owners. Uh, <laughs> you, you pointed out to me that uh, I, I thought it would be the sixth, but the point of uh, so we have Cranky, who who is a part owner of Arsenal, but he is, uh, of course, the the majority owner. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lerner at Villa, John Henry uh, LFC, Glazers at United, Ellis Short at Sunderland. So this will John be John Henry this, at Liverpool. Yeah, I, I did. I say that. I think I did. Um, so. In general, you have to wonder if uh, this is a sign. I guess let me ask you: Is this a sign that these these owners realize the growth of the sport in America, or are they just investing because they know it's going to be generating revenue for them, independent of the growth of the sport in America? I don't think people are specifically seeking out American owners. Mm-hmm. I think that the value of these clubs in the Premier League have gotten to has gotten to the point. And potentially the needs of some of these clubs, as the Crystal Palace example highlights, right. where they really brought in new American investors to help refurbish Selhurst. Um, it's gotten to the point where you're looking for foreign ownership in general. Uh, there are yeah. a lot of other foreign owners in the league beyond the American owners. And when you're talking about different places on earth that not only have the cultural links but the financial power to yeah. buy into a Premier League team, it doesn't it, – it's not that coincidental that Americans are buying teams. Americans yeah. are more predisposed to invest in English companies and English teams. Americans ha- – America has a huge and deep sporting culture and uh, Americans have money. So money, that's it, yeah. You line up those things together and, of course, we see foreign ownership 
all over the Premier League now. In fact, uh, foreign owners vastly outnumber the domestic ones in the league at right. this point. So yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we can. I think David Kahn makes some good points about this by kind of wondering what it is about the Premier League that draws in Americans and is the draw of Americans into the Premier League kind of leading to that franchisation of these clubs. But if it wasn't Americans, that's going to happen anyway because most places in the world, whether it be North America or Asia or someplace else, are going to come in and look at these clubs as a business. So this isn't just about America, I don't think. Yeah, good point. Another thing that happened, Richard, a news story uh, today was that Sergio Busquets, who's one of my favorite players, says that Guardiola is one of those people that could entice him to go somewhere else other than his wife. You've got to be hating this. You've got to, all these all these Seriously, players are going to be linked to City over the next four months. It. It's going to drive you me crazy. It, it's driving me crazy. It, that's exactly it. I was uh, on ULF yesterday. I was talking about how, for me, Michael Carrick is the best, almost the best in the world in his position. The only person that I think might be better is better than him actually is Busquets in that position that's a, that's uh, a strong statement on Michael Carrick yeah, yeah wow. I, if yeah you are now really the biggest was. Michael Carrick fan on the show you've passed Kartik Krishnayer <laughs> wow that's saying something yeah, yeah. I, I I love myself some Michael Carrick I think he's a very underrated footballer but the point being that Busquets I, I mean as you said there will be lots of nonsense about the players that are linked and Busquets probably will not end up at City because uh, he has everything going for him at Barcelona. I'm sure they'll renegotiate his contract again and all that stuff. But the fact of the matter is that Guardiola has potentiated the drawing power of Man City, which was already like, considered. Like, like it's a Petri dish and we just added some solution to it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Potentiate. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Add a little bit of Guardiola here. All right, now we're predisposed for uh, talent cultures to grow in this dish. <laughs> That's exactly right. But it's tr- it's true. Busquets is an interesting example because his ascendance into the first team of Barcelona coincided with Pep Guardiola taking over there. Oh, absolutely. And in that time, Barcelona has been the most prolific club in football history in terms of claiming trophies. So Busquets is, per a year that he's played, the most prolific football player in football history as far as team honors is concerned. So on one hand, you can ask, why would anybody leave Barcelona? They wouldn't leave Barcelona for competitive reasons, financial reasons. Even though Barcelona is winning everything, they're actually challenged every year in Spain. They're challenged in Champions League. It's not like they're rolling over people unless it's, you know, every other match day or something like that, (laughs) or group group stage of Champions League. I was going to say, they roll over quite a few people. They they roll over quite a few people. Valencia, ask Valencia. I can already hear the voices on our listeners say, that's because Spain is so weak. Don't don't come at me with that. I'm the one person you do not want to come at with that. But Sergio Busquets might look at the other side of that coin and say, there is nothing left for me to accomplish here. In fact, I'm getting to the point in my career where I'm going to ask, start asking questions. If I don't move away from Barcelona, I will always say, what if I did move? And now... There's the most popular league in the world with the one coach that I would love to play with more than anybody else. Manchester City can pay wages beyond almost anybody else, and they're ready to compete for titles on all fronts. If I'm not going to make this move now, am I ever going to leave Barcelona? And so I kind of think it might happen. Uh, I, I mean, I see that logic. I guess the part of me that wants him to stay and not go to City yeah. is just really loud right now, just because I, I don't want him to see. I don't want to see him in City's blue. But the, the reasons you have laid out are fair. Uh, I think I think this uh, thing that we say about players seeking a new challenge is a little bit overblown, though. Mm-hmm. I think it's a it's a very it's like a football manager thing that you have <laughs> coming out and saying, you know, I need a new challenge. I think someone like Busquets, who came to that academy, PK, uh, Messi, Iniesta, Xavi, are happy to play out their careers uh, at Barcelona because not very not true. because uh, not because uh, of the fact that 
they, they don't need a new challenge. They probably do. But the truth is that there's families involved and there's all of that off-field stuff involved there too. I mean, think about moving from Barcelona to Manchester. No, that, that's a very good point. I mean, you mentioned Xavi, and he he obviously did eventually move to Qatar, but that yeah. was at the very end of his career, and there were other yeah. reasons above that. Iniesta, if he does leave Barcelona, it'll probably be a, a very similar move. It'll be like five or six, four or five years right. from now. You also look at somebody like Carlos Puyol, who retired there as an exactly. icon. And all three of those players are an icon. I think the question is, is Sergio, is Sergio Busquets a similar level icon there? I think Gerard Piquet will grow into that if he's not already becoming that. But then again, he already had experience away from the club. And, United, and Busquets, yeah. yeah, Busquets hasn't had that. So I, for all these reasons, I think it's, it's a very interesting situation. And uh, Nipun is just one of a number of names we're going to hear linked to that club. We're already, of course, hearing uh, the name like names like Thiago Alcantara being yeah. linked to that and I'm sure there'll be a couple of other Bayern players and I'm sure just like if you saw Thiago going from Barcelona to Bayern when Pep moved there there's going right. to be one or two players that For end up sure. at City that we don't know like maybe Arturo Verdal's trouble settling in at Bayern will leave him to City or maybe somebody like Kingsley Coleman who's only on a loan right now from Juventus ends up in England next year instead of being at Bayern who knows and Vidal has been linked to both Manchester clubs and to Chelsea for a couple of summers now, so that's actually a good shout. I yeah, looking back on it, I'm, I'm kind of surprised he didn't end up at United, but then again, he was kind of like that Wesley Schneider where it always seemed exactly. like it was right on the verge of it. Uh, yeah. Let's move on to one other story in the Premier League. This one's kind of interesting. It's interesting because it's kind of sad because Kurt Zuma was getting his oh, first, first so team time of his career with Chelsea, uh, but this weekend suffered a knee injury. People feared the worst from the moment it happened, and then the worst news came this week torn acl out for six months this is just before we talk about like the implications on gustini's team this is just sad because chelsea fans have been wanting players to come through and Mm. get real time and kurt zuma had basically won that starting position over gary cahill over the last few months and his development over the next between now and may was going to be key to to chelsea maybe being a not, not so much a title contender next year but charging towards the top four. How many people are they going to have to buy? If Zuma can establish himself there, maybe they don't have to spend the 30, 40 million in transfer fees to get somebody in central defense. Now, we don't know about that development and given it's an ACL tear, we don't know what he's going to be like when he comes back. Yeah, not only physically, Richard, but I, I think uh, there's mental scarring from an injury like that where you're in that much pain in the, in front of hundreds of millions of people. So uh, there's that he'll have to deal with. And let's not forget that he's going to miss out, as you said, about in terms of development, he's going to miss out on a few months of playing alongside one of the best Premier League defenders of very uh, true of, of, of all time, I guess, Premier League defender yeah. uh, is in John Terry. Because I think the education he was getting playing alongside John Terry, who is an incredible defender, was you know one of the most important things that he would have experienced. Now with Terry, probably. Possibly, oh, I He's going to be there next year. He's going to be their manager. You didn't hear that? <laughs> no, I'm going to start right? that rumor. John, John Terry is going to be over. Chelsea's next manager. I mean, we're hearing a lot of rumors of Max Allegri coming in from Juventus to take over next year. Uh, I believe on last week's midweek show, you hypothesized the idea of Manuel Pellegrini. You're not the only person to hypothesize that either. Uh, Manuel Pellegrini moving to Chelsea. No. We've always known that John Terry was going to eventually be the manager of Chelsea. It starts in June. It's Drogba, baby. Drogba's going to be <laughs> Chelsea, Chelsea and Drogba. That's it. I, I don't know. That would be, I would love that to happen. But, uh, let's talk about on the field next to John yeah. Terry. Uh, obviously for Chelsea, this is 
I don't want to say it's a huge setback, but it does present a depth issue. Gary yeah, Cahill, especially for the very warm relegation battle that's going on. Yeah, I, I, don't, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if Chelsea's going to drift in there, but they now have like a smaller margin for error, right? I mean, Terry and Cahill are are established. They obviously yes. have their faults. There's a reason why Zuma was playing so much. Right. Uh, the com- it's not that Cahill is bad. It's the combination of Terry and Cahill are a little bit too much like for like. It's like that yeah. Ultimendi Dimichelis problem that we talked about this weekend, where they neither of them are good one on one defenders. Terry and Cahill together just have no foot speed. Um, and the next choice in line is Branislav Ivanovic, which doesn't help that problem either. So what are the options? Probably takes it worse, actually. Yeah, probably, even though he's playing at fullback where you would think speed's important. Um, yeah. But what other options do you see in the Chelsea fold right now? So the big one that I'm sure we'll talk about in Miazga, we'll, we'll get into that. The Who's other this? option... I've never heard of this guy. Me. Miazga, he, he's, this, uh, he's an Indian defender that was brought over <laughs> from the Indian Super League. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome if that, if that were the case. It would be awesome. Uh, Miazga, if you're listening, feel free to convert to the Indian uh, to Indian citizenship. I will pay for it. Oh, he, he, uh, could, he could probably play striker for the Indian national team. He could play anywhere for the Indian yeah, national true. team. Uh, okay, so the other options are Ola and Aina. You were talking about uh, uh, people coming through. Now, this this is a young man who's represented Chelsea at every level from U11s up. Uh, does not have any. First, uh, first team experience on the other however he was involved with the preseason so he's been in the in and around the squad all year Richard so that's an option mm-hmm. the less likely option even uh, even less likely option is Baba Rahman now Baba Rahman is someone who's played fullback has made a few appearances he has played as center back a couple of games for Augsburg but in general he's a fullback so realistically if you put aside Terry Cah- Cahill and Ivanovic and let's not forget that all of those guys are well maybe not Ivanovic, but Terry and Cahill are probably unlikely to go through the season without getting at least one minor injury. Hmm. Which means Miazga is probably gonna make his debut for Chelsea now. And if he was still there, Nathan Ake would probably be getting a lot yeah. of time or he'd be in line for a lot of time. Maybe once Chelsea fully is two like three or four games clear of relegation, if that ever happens, uh they would start playing some of these kids more and uh, not that Nathan Ake hasn't been getting a lot of time where he's at right now out on loan this year, but uh it would be good for Chelsea to have some of those players that they've sent out this year in the squad. So now that they're in this kind of transition phase, they can yeah. see what those players are like. Uh, some more news around the Premier League. Still the escalation going on at Anfield regarding the walkout this weekend, the 77th minute protest, the new ticket package that LFC is trying to put in for next year. A lot of support, including support from the FSF Supporters Union in England, trying to rally more supporters around that cause. Uh, Football League striked again. They leaked David De Gea's potential contract with Real Madrid. If Real Madrid's fax machine hadn't have broken, he would have been making $13.3 million a year. Wow. Uh, and then also sent around uh, Manchester United. Not really worth talking about, but The Sun had a report this week about Mauricio Pochettino's representation talking to the higher-ups about Manchester United regarding taking over this summer. I, I do want to get your thoughts on that, Nipun. I, yeah. I, it just seems like a very unlikely move, although kind of a great move for United. I just don't see Pochettino doing it. Great move for United, a poor move for Pochettino. Uh, I think Pochettino, actually when you, the three of us, you, Karthik, and I did the, uh, we rated the managers, we all rated Pochettino fairly highly. That's mm-hmm. how, you know, we, we, we think he's a terrific manager. Yeah, we uh, had him at number five right outside of that top four that uh, exactly. we had established. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think one of us had him as highest two or three. Uh, one of us did. Not me. I'm not that <laughs> smart. But uh, Pochettino, I think, is a very good manager. He had a good stint as Espanyol. Of course, we know his stint uh, at uh, Southampton. And now he has Spurs up in the Champions League spots and second currently. But 
the way he what he's built at Spurs, I think it would be silly for him to let go of that. Yeah. Now, let me post this to you though. If this summer Spurs loses a couple of players, and I, I'm thinking mm-hmm. specifically in terms of Kane, uh, Ericsson, or Dele Alli, mm-hmm. if you're Pochettino, you start wondering if you will be able to achieve the the kinds of goals that you are uh, that that you want to achieve. In that mm-hmm. case, that might become an attractive option for him. Other than that, I don't see him moving. Your I, thoughts? I agree with you. I think if this squad stays together. I can't picture another team being title favorites next year over Spurs. Now, there's a lot of, there are a lot of moves that are going to happen. Money is going to be spent, but the money that's going to be spent by most teams is just going to be kind of like for like swaps. It's going to be Manchester United trying to bring in a wide player that they expected to perform the way Memphis Depay was expected to perform this year. Mm-hmm. I think Mauricio Pochettino's team, if it stays together, will be the title favorites going into next year. Now, uh, to your hypothetical, those three players, I, I don't see Harry Kane moving because the type of teams that can afford him have superior strikers, and his price is going to be high. Man United, I, dude. I would say the, the the one immediately I think of is Man United. I don't think there's any way Spurs sell Harry Kane to Manchester United. Mm. I, I Manchester United, maybe Manchester United can pay some ridiculous fee. That Spurs are like, oh my god, well Harry Kane is not a sixty million pound player. We're going to take. Oh, this. of course not. Well, but, the thing is, we know that Spurs get every team to overpay for their talent. That, yeah. That's just a given. So I think Manchester United, rather than doing that, would spend that money on players from around the continent because they do have that kind of draw. Uh, Deli Ali, I think that would be hard to even put a price tag on him, given where right. he is in his contract cycle, just signing a new deal. But Christian Eriksen is the one person that you look at teams on the continent that can afford to spend 40 or $50 million for a player where you go, well, maybe Real Madrid would go out and get him or maybe a Bayern, something for at Bayern Munich would work out there too, even though Bayern doesn't typically spend that much. I, I think Spurs, though, are in this nice situation where they don't have a Bale or Modric-level player and they have the financial clout to uh, stave off any attempts for players kind of below that threshold. So I find it... I find it very difficult to think that very many players are going to move on from Spurs this year. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to phrase uh, to put it, Richard. I, what I'll say is that there are players in that team that I think uh, vultures, and in some ways, that's what uh, my beloved United and Real mm-hmm. Madrid and Barcelona are in terms of attracting players, especially from Spurs. In the case of Madrid and United, uh, but when you look at someone like Loris or Tongan, or even somebody uh, coming in and paying like twenty four million for Dembele. Right. Something I was like say Dembele would be the next one. There are players that can be taken away from the Spurs team and it will be I guess that we'll find out about Pochettino's managerial ability, how he replaces this perfectly tuned machine he has right now in Spurs. If, the, if any of those players leave. What a crazy year that we are about two thirds of the way through the season and we're talking about next year's title favorites being Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> what a crazy time in English football. Uh, when we come back from this break, we're going to talk about the bottom three in this year's league, our predictions for where we think that's going to end up with the knowledge we have right now. And then we'll start counting down the 10 matches this weekend in the 26th round of the English Premier League season. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. All right, Nipun, let's talk about the relegation battle. A relegation battle that's getting more intense now that uh, we've got some life out of Aston Villa. Eight points in their last five games. Yeah. Not exactly within touch of 17th place, but it's not so hard to imagine them getting there if they continue this run. But uh, let's let's talk about our bottom threes. Given what we know now, what three clubs do we think are going down? 
Yeah, my bottom three hasn't changed from the first day of the season. It's still exactly the same. <laughs> Aston Villa, Sunderland, Norwich City. Uh, it's for me, Villa, even though they have had a couple of good results, and some of it has come after uh, the moment that we actually thought Dremigard was walking away from the club, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and Sunderland, just not enough quality there. Now we know Defoe is injured for a couple of games, possibly. Mm. That's going to hurt them. Uh, and North City, as I had said uh, when I recorded with Karthik, I was there was a false dawn there with Umbakani. I thought he would give them a couple of goals and give mm. them a, uh, maybe catapult them to 17th place. But since that Liverpool game where he was terrific, he has done absolutely nothing. Yeah, Norwich City is the worst team in the league right now, the way they're yeah. performing. So since they're in the bottom three, it's very difficult to pick them to survive unless you find some reason that they're going to turn around. And given how they're playing, they're definitely in my bottom three. Aston Villa, too, I think just the math of it makes it difficult to pick them, even though they're probably not one of the three worst teams in the league at this very moment. So the one debate I end up with is Sunderland versus who? And based on the teams that are above the drop... The ones immediately above the, above the drop being Swansea and Newcastle. I don't think Sunderland's going to outplay them. I just wonder if West Brom is going to end up falling all the way back to the mm. back. And I think West Brom right now has nine points on Sunderland. It's just not enough time, I think, given how the teams are playing now. Uh, so my bottom three is the same as yours. But I, I do, you know, if I were a Baggy supporter, I would be, I would be really worried that one of these other teams gets hot along the way. Uh, Nipun, 10 games this weekend. We're going to count them down from 10 to 1, uh, starting with what we think is the least interesting at number 10, Crystal Palace versus Watford. It's Saturday, 10 o'clock Eastern time start. I think these are two very good teams, Nipun, but they're just not two very good teams that match up together are going to put together a great game of soccer. Expect just a few goals. This is going to be a tight one. I don't know uh, who's going to decide it or what's going to decide it. I just don't suspect this is going to be a very entertaining game. Definitely not. I think uh, Palace... His issue is uh, putting the ball in the net. They they create enough chances, in my opinion, just not a no striker there. So uh, probably a nil-nil is probably a good uh, guess there. Number nine is North City versus West Ham. Uh, West Ham are winless at Carroll Road in the last 16 Premier League uh, matches between the two. It's a pretty crazy uh, stat there. West Ham will be fatigued after their uh, win today, Richard. They, they won... Uh, Last minute header, incredible header by Ogbonna, uh to played a lot of regulars too. Yeah, played a lot of regulars. They will be exhausted, but they'll also be buoyed by by that win. You know, because uh, with Liverpool, if it went to PKs, Liverpool was probably going to go through. So there'll be the lift of that. North City will be well rested, but I give the edge to West Ham uh, just based on some of the things we talked about about North City about a few minutes ago. Number eight, Swansea City versus Southampton. Two informed teams. Swansea, particularly after Guadalene came on to take over the head coaching responsibilities, has been very good, undefeated in their last four. Southampton, one of the better defenses in the league right now, if not the best. And that's probably why we have this one ranked so low. Southampton, if they score the first goal, they're going to lock down on this game and win this one. The only question, can they replace Vincent Wanyama? Red card last game, suspension. since it's in Wales, you got to think that Swansea has a little better chance than you might otherwise expect. Yeah, I would give Swansea the edge if Ki Sung Young were fit, but I still think he has that concussion issue. So mm. uh, I think he's so important to that Swansea system that uh, I, I give the edge to Southampton, even though they're missing Wanyama in this game. Next one, we have number seven, Richard, is Burnmouth versus Stoke City. As you were right about all along, you evil bastard. Stoke City 
is uh, just hemorrhaging points, is playing poorly, uh, is not very pretty to watch. There is no Stoke Alona, you were right, all along. Uh, on the other hand, Burnmouth, uh, in my opinion, have come. They lost the last game, but I think with a phobia up top, uh, with the Turbe coming in, um, they have done enough. And I, I get, actually uh, pick Burnmouth to to have the beating of Stoke City in this game. Yeah, Burnmouth played okay this weekend, even though they lost two 0 to Arsenal, lost yeah. giving up two goals in basically two minutes in the first half. I think aesthetically, this is going to be a very good game. These are two teams that like to keep the ball on the ground. I'm mm-hmm. just not sure that there's very many. The stakes are very high in this one. Bournemouth could be pulled back into a relegation battle. I'm not convinced they will be. Stoke is now starting to get mired mid-table and looking like they're going to have a lot of insignificant games over the next four months. I just I'm not sure what the stakes are in this game. Stop gloating. <laughs> <laughs> now the stakes in the next game are number six on the list are pretty clear. Aston Villa is hosting Liverpool. Liverpool still has Europa League aspirations. Their league form is making it harder to justify those. But Aston yeah. Villa, of course, like we said at the beginning of the segment, eight points in the last five games, actually getting results now at home against the Liverpool team, where a couple of regulars did appear in today's game. Felipe Cacchino actually started this one, so you wonder if he's going to start this game on Sunday, even though there is a big turnaround. This looks like an opportunity for Villa to continue their good form against a very inconsistent Liverpool. I wouldn't put money on any result. I'm not going to be surprised by any result. Liverpool uh, today didn't play uh, Sacco and Toure, who will probably come in as centre-backs. Uh, Sturridge played today, uh, Richard. Uh, he had good 20, 30 minutes where he uh, had a few good moments. Uh, Benteke missed a few sitters. So there'll be massive rotation. And because of the fact that Sturridge is back and Coutinho is back, I'm going to give the edge to Liverpool in this game. Number five, Richard, is Everton versus West Brom. Everton uh, continue to impress me, especially in the last, last few games. They, they have started... Uh, start started to really turn them turn the gears a little bit. Uh, I I think they're heavy favorites in this game, in my opinion. West Brom has uh, Johnny Evans missing; he's still injured. So Everton, uh, even though West Brom will set up in uh, what is essentially a goalkeeper and ten zero formation. Oh, uh, Everton will have enough attacking prowess to get past them. Yeah, what a difference in styles here. Everton, all goals, no defense so far this year. Very little defense. West yeah. Brom. All defense, no no <laughs> goals this year. Uh, the difference is Everton's starting to put things together. They actually haven't been conceding very many goals lately. Part of that is because the fixture list has been kind to them, but the fixture list is kind to them on Saturday. Uh, West Brom is not going to threaten them. Uh, West Brom is probably going to do their best to make arguably the most exciting team in the league not exciting, but it's a good Sin Park. Every indication here is that these are teams going in different directions. Everton is the team that's climbing the table. John, John Stones and Howard, I think, are still missing for this game, so that's something I guess West Brom will look at in terms of uh, areas if they if they ever get forward maybe that's something yeah. that I'm not sure very many Toffee supporters are going to be sad about those absences either yep that's true number four on the list Chelsea versus Newcastle a game that doesn't have a ton of significance although both of these teams are trying to inch their way above the relegation zone something that's a little bit more important right now for Newcastle than Chelsea yeah. who appear to be safe but this match has given us a lot of good fixtures in recent years Newcastle a little bit more prone to spring upsets on Chelsea catching catching them on the counter, we've seen some very clever uh, plans put in place by Alan Pardew uh, in the past in this match. It just when these two teams get together, it rarely yeah. is boring. Both teams have talent, even though they haven't had results this year. And this should be a good one. This is the twelve thirty Eastern time start on on Saturday. It should be a, a decent product for that isolated time slot. Do you have a favorite Chelsea versus Newcastle moment? I'm not sure. Um, 
for me, I think unless I'm remembering remembering this incorrectly, Richard, I think Papi Cisse scored that incredible goal against Czech oh my in the Chelsea God. Newcastle game, right? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think that was Chelsea. That's Newcastle. how my memory is too. Uh, yeah, that oh was. That I think was they won two goal. nothing that day. That would, that would if if I'm remembering correctly, and our, our listeners can. Uh, that seems check. right. That seems like a game. One of the games where Newcastle had no business winning it, yeah. but then a the goal like that. I think I remember some of my Chelsea friends just kind of going, "What were we supposed to do? We can't yeah. stop that goal." Literally, cannot do anything about that. Yeah, no, that that was an absolute great goal. Uh, what about this match? What what are you feeling about this one? I think Chelsea uh, have looked better. I think they they uh, probably so they in the game against United. You guys talked about it. I, I think they were better. Uh, they played better. United was the better team, but. For me, Newcastle is actually a little bit of a favorite in this game, um, mostly because I, I don't see with with the the injury we talked about in defense. I don't know if Terry and Cahill are going to be able to handle the likes of Wijnaldum. I know I know yeah. Wijnaldum has or kind if, of fallen away a little bit, and Mitrovic or, or uh, if McLaren really goes after that speed factor and starts Perez up right. stop instead of Mitrovic. Yep, that's a, that's also a good point. So Perez can and Perez has done well as a sub too, you know. So yeah, uh, even if Mitrovic starts, I can see it going either way. Mitrovic options. coming off the bench. So uh, in that sense, I'll give the slight edge to Newcastle. A lot of options there. Let's go to the number three match on the list: Sunderland yeah. versus Manchester United. Uh, by the table, this looks like there isn't much balance here, but Sunderland has actually been playing better lately. We saw yeah. them give City troubles in the last game at the Stadium of Life. They deserve to win at City, for sure. We saw them come back against Liverpool last week yeah. and taking advantage of a lack of focus at the end. Manchester United has also been playing better football lately, even though the results haven't quite been there. Put those things together, and this looks like an interesting game. I think it will be an interesting game. I don't think this was a game that would be earmarked by a lot of people, but I think you make some good points there. Uh Sun for Sunderland, as I mentioned, Defoe is injured, which is a problem. Borini is still injured. Larson, long-term injury, so the goals issue will continue for them. Van Arnholt is still their most creative player. In my opinion, with United playing better, uh, with Martial playing probably the best football he's played this season, which is saying a lot because he's been our uh, Manchester United's best player. Uh, with Rooney coming back to form, with Lingard having uh, scored in the in the last game, uh, with Actually, the man of the match for me, other than De Gea, Richard, in the last game, was actually our left back, Borthwick Jackson. Even though he made that city mistake, I yeah. thought he was very. He had he had a very good performance uh, crossing the ball from the left. So with those things, I, I'm going to say United are favorites uh, for this game. I, I always say that on the podcast, and United drop points. <laughs> But I'm going to stick to it. <laughs> yeah, such a tough moment for Bothwick Jackson at the end, uh, keeping yeah. Diego Costa on side and effectively costing his team two points. But like you said, I think that probably overshadowed a lot of good work going forward, some smart decisions in the final third, yeah. ability to make a difference actually as the ball approaches, approaches the other team's penalty area. And, uh, for a Manchester United fan, a game where Lingard scores a goal and then uh, Bothwick Jackson looks so good, kind of keeps that club's tradition going. Uh, let's talk about the two main matches this weekend. Here we go. All the top four matching up against each other. And what sticks out about these two games, and we're going to talk about Manchester City versus Tottenham first, is that the reverse fixtures earlier this season were not close. Manchester City visiting White Hart Lane earlier this year throttled 4-1, to one of two embarrassing 4-1 to defeats earlier this season. And then the second game, Arsenal versus Leicester City. Arsenal, one of two teams to defeat the Foxes this year, and they won 5-2 at the King Power. So let's talk about the game at the Etihad. Uh, what are your feelings? What jumps out to you about this one? What jumps out to me uh, for the City game is that 
Vertonghen will be a miss. I, I know they've they've managed to go on without him, but mm-hmm. Vertonghen against Aguero, I think, would have been a matchup that you would actually put a little bit of money on Vertonghen. Without him, I think Aguero uh, will even even with Alderweireld, who's had a very good season. I think Aguero has the beating of him. So that's one thing that sticks out at me. And Richard, the other big thing, and I'm sure we were we were going to get into it. So I apologize for jumping ahead, <laughs> but the big thing is. I did not realize how bad City had it in terms of injuries. Mm-hmm. They're missing Nazri, Navas, De Bruyne, and probably Silva, probably Company and Mangala. Right. That, yeah, that yeah. that attacking midfield that looked like it was such a source of depth, so much so that people were wondering right. why they spent money on why De Bruyne. Why they spent all this money, yeah. And I think compounding the depth issues uh, is the fact that Manuel Pellegrini, even though Caliche Inacho has stepped forward and looks like a Premier League caliber player, we yeah. saw last week that he's not really aggressively using him. He's still in his kind of big game formations, is only going with Aguero up top. Mm-hmm. So whereas somebody like Inacho could mitigate some of the issues of losing those attacking midfielders, he seems reticent to use him, and he seems more likely to rely on his central midfield depth to offset the numbers and Last week against Leicester, that, that kind of cost him the game from the get-go. Yeah, I agree with that. But I think in this game, uh, he will have to set that right. I think given the personnel that are missing uh, in this game and what happened last week, he probably starts with Sterling, uh, Inacio, Yaya, and Aguero, right, in the four up top. That would be my, my prediction. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I really don't know. The Silva thing really does throw things off a lot because there isn't another... Uh, wide midfielder that's been regularly played this year. They brought in a youth right. product uh, to make up the numbers this week weekend, and he got on late against yeah. the Foxes. But it's hard to see him starting a game of this magnitude. So, yeah, I do think something like that, or uh, maybe Delph plays just in wide midfield instead of kind of like right. that hybrid wide midfield role that we've seen him play a lot on the left side this year. But it's it's, it's so trying, not only because they lost 4-1 to one in the other game they played against Spurs, but you talked about some of the mat- matchup issues or you alluded, alluded to them. They need to find a way to get the ball to Aguero. They need to yeah. find a way to isolate Aguero on Wimmer, 23-year-old uh, that's stepping in for Vertonghen, and test them. And between players like Dembele and Dele Ali and Eriksen making it difficult to make that connection and the lack of quality, this game seems like it could get really bogged down for Manchester City. Yeah, uh, I don't know how what what sit, what Pellegrini will be thinking from a tactical perspective because he has been embarrassed just a week ago by Leicester City and that was an embarrassment, nothing short of an embarrassment. So there is some serious pressure on Pellegrini at this moment, given that the Guardiola news came out a week ago, given they were embarrassed by Leicester City to have a good performance in this game. Now, does that mean Richard he's going to sit back and uh, sorry he's going to set up in a way to ensure that City don't get embarrassed that, that even if they have to eke out a draw that's a good result? Maybe at this point with the limitations you're talking about because we, we we just think how the game might play out. You have that City defense that you mentioned is hamstrung. Maybe yeah. their two best central defenders or at least two of their three best central defenders unavailable against Spurs pressure. You've got that midfield that's looking very not dynamic lately. So even if Otamendi and Dimichelis are able to move the ball forward. They're still going to have troubles matching up there. And last week we saw against a team that doesn't exert the same pressure as right. Spurs does. We saw 
uh, Sergio Aguero just get lost. They couldn't connect to him. I don't think that's going to be any better. Now, if we're talking about a game that Spurs are going to dictate in that way because Manchester City's not able to make those connections to get the ball forward into attack, then Kane versus those center backs that have had so many troubles, winning their one-on-one battles becomes more important. Yaya Toure in the defensive phase, making sure he or Fernando can keep track of Christian Eriksen, that becomes more important. Does Eric Lamella have the one-on-one opportunity against against Alexander Kolarov that you don't necessarily want him to have if you're a City fan? I think there are a lot of things here that when you start to play out the game in your mind, look very bad for Manchester City, and particularly bad because, like we're talking about, there are not a lot of options for Pellegrini to be able to avoid these things. Look, the thing for me, the big one is, again, I know this is oversimplistic, but again, Yaya Toure is so important to this game. <laughs> yeah. Because if, if you play Yaya Toure in that deep holding role, this game is over. There's no way that, that City wins this game. The and, only way you can uh, sorry, just to finish this yeah. point, Yaya has to be played in the advanced role because yeah. he does not have the legs to track back. He will not win the battle against someone like Ericsson. So, you know, you have to play Fernando Fernandinho in those deep roles to keep keep Yaya Turi out of the defensive possession. I think that's a good point because last week it seemed like Pellegrini was trying to make this compromise where Yaya in the defensive phase would be one of the central midfielders. He'd be next to Fernandinho and then Delph could split out to the left to help with Mares. But Yaya Turi, because of his lack of effort at this point, or maybe it's not lack of effort, maybe there's some kind of health issue or age issue, he wasn't able to make up the ground to get into the attack. So essentially, Pellegrini sacrificed an attacker and didn't have a way to make up those numbers going right. forward. So now, if he switches system a little bit, maybe plays Ture farther forward so he doesn't have to make up the ground. He's just up there already. Or maybe he plays like a straight 4-4-2 of, of some kind and... Um, just relies on Ihanacho and Aguero up top and then maybe wide midfielders of Delph and Sterling to mm-hmm. then play as kind of traditional wingers. Maybe that works. But either way, like you're mentioning, there has to be some kind of solution for Yaya Torre. There has to be. Yeah, you I mean, can't just rely on him to be this very expansive midfielder to cover the ground that he used to because to this point in the season, he's proving that he can't do that anymore. That's exactly right. There, there was a time three years ago you could stick Yaya Toure anywhere on that pitch in the central position, whether it was holding, whether it was a traditional central midfielder, whether there was an attacking midfielder, and he would deliver for you any game against anyone in the world. That's how good he was. But it's just not realistic to expect his 33-year-old legs to track back for 90 minutes every game uh, now. And, and Pellegrini has to make that decision, and he has to make it for the rest of the season, not just for this game. Hmm. Yeah, the more I think about it, now I'm starting to wonder if we might see Gael Klichy or Alexander Korolov actually in midfield, just to help with the situation. Yeah, um, so we're pretty pessimistic about City's chances here. Yeah. What gets really interesting, if Tottenham maintains their form, if Manchester City maintains their form, meaning Spurs leave the Etihad with three points, all of a sudden it's going to be City versus United for the fourth place. Oh, I mean, look, I, even as a United supporter, I don't see a way back for United uh, into this top four. I was talking about it on ULF yesterday. The most likely for me would be for Spurs to have a Spursy moment, and I just don't see it happening. So yeah. for me, the top four is pretty much how it's going to play out. Uh, and, and, you know, the historic... Yeah, yeah. Lovers of United, Liverpool, Chelsea just have to, we just have to sit back and appreciate a crazy Premier League season. I agree with you, but if Manchester City wins at the Stadium of Light and Manchester City loses, that gap yeah. is only three points. And it's not only only three points. City have an anchor and Manchester City's floating up. Uh, Manchester United's floating up. 
Yeah, but City have still have more game changers than United. United still has a lot of, lot of long-term injuries. City will have a lot of these players coming back. I, I know De Bruyne is done. There's no doubt about that. But Silva <laughs> and all these guys, Company they will and be... and Mangala are getting close. Yeah, whereas United's injuries are long-term, almost all of them. So uh, the injury issue at United will not get better. Okay, let's switch focus. Third in the league versus first in the league in North London at the Emirates Stadium. We didn't really talk about Spurs, by the way. We should maybe for a minute at least give them uh, their formation or their you know play personnel some credit here as well. Oh yeah, no, I think I think we did. I mean, we started talking about all the problems that they can present between yeah. the midfield pressure players like Dembele and Ali can help exert. Exactly. Ericsson being so dangerous that Torrey's lack of effort is going to be a problem. And yep. Harry Kane, if they can get Harry Kane into any one-on-one matchups against those central defenders, it's going to be Kane. problematic. And then yep. Eric, Eric Lamella, too. I think I think Kolarov kind of gets a bad rap a lot of times, but Kolarov versus Lamella is not a matchup that Pellegrini is going to want. So we'll, yep. we'll see we'll see how that plays out. But like you like you just hinted, Spurs have danger men everywhere. Yep. And even, even when we're talking about Aguero versus potentially versus Wimmer, Eric Dyer can cut that out. Eric Dyer is yeah. one of the best defensive midfielders in the league this year. So he's going to be big about big in preventing that. Because that that's actually a really good shout because the more Aguero gets isolated, the more he's going to drop into those positions where Dyer becomes even more important. So yeah, Dyer being in that position is very important. Yeah, I, even saying that, there are kind of a lot of thoughts that jump into my mind because that's where they're really going to miss David Silva because mm-hmm. when exactly. Aguero has to go wide to get the ball, if he goes to David Silva's side, Silva's ability to play and then run into those central forward positions where he can still be effective, Raheem Sterling's ability to fill that space too, that really allows Aguero to go into wide areas, be effective, be effective as a decision maker with the ball at his feet. So not having Silva to come up, fill those spaces, or be the person that can find him wide, well, Davi Silva is just an important player. I guess we didn't need that many words yeah. to say that. Last thought on this game, Richard. Mm-hmm. Watch Aguero get a hat trick and Yair <laughs> have three assists. <laughs> it, it, those players could go off at any time. I suppose that's the disclaimer we should have said 15 yes. minutes ago. <laughs> Let's talk about Arsenal versus Leicester City. I want to go back to the game at the King Power Stadium, which was 5-2. to It was one of our early hints that Leicester City might fall back to the pack at some point, and in that way, that hint was a lie. But I think the question we have to ask about this matchup right now is, what reason is there to think Arsenal isn't still... Head-to-head, maybe not overall as far as league campaign is concerned, but head-to-head, what reason is there to think they're not going to be able to put up a similar result? I think Sanchez is not in the kind of form he was back then. I think Sanchez uh, had a hat trick that day. Yep. So I think uh, that's a huge thing. I think Sanchez's drop-in form has coincided with Arsenal fluctuating a little bit. They're still, by the way, still been my pick for the, winning the league, but uh, I do, I am cognizant of the fact that they haven't been performing as well uh, as they were at the start of the season. Another issue for me is in the central midfield. Uh, at that mm-hmm. time, they were, they had Casola fit alongside him. They had Flamini. They had, at that time, they had Arteta fit as well. So they had a lot of fit players that they could move around, move the puzzles around depending on the opposition. Right now, that's not the case. Casola is out. Uh, we'll talk about Flamini, I'm sure. Arteta is still out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Coquelin might comes uh, maybe comes into the picture. Yeah, in that holding role. 
so those are two big reasons I I can think of that which convinced me that it will not be a blowout like it was. Uh, yeah, let's definitely talk about the midfield situation for yeah. Arsenal because I think a lot of fans are going to be wondering if this is the time to push Francis Coquelin into the starting lineup since he's been healthy for a couple of weeks yeah. now, but he hasn't claimed that spot back yet from Matthew Flamini. But I think going back to the question that I uh, posed to you, what has yeah. changed? Uh, Leicester's defense has played better. They've improved. True. Back, Very good point. Back then, they were one of the worst defenses in the league, and the Foxes were having to outfox people on the run. Well uh, done. Now, thank <laughs> you. Now, Wes Morgan and Robert Huth have really tightened up. Casper uh, Schmeichel, probably one of the four or five best keepers in the league this year. His distribution has been really good. Yeah. My problem with their central defense is they are kind of playing with two traditional central defenders, sacrificing some speed for some strength, uh, some size, and I think that's worked well for them. But the problem comes when you have Alexis Sanchez as somebody that come cut in from the left. When you have maybe Theo Walcott starting in the right. Two very fast people. When you have somebody like Metsut Ozil who can drift into spaces, change the point of attack, allow those players to come up and take advantage of the space that Olivier Giroud creates with his movement and his runs. And so I think that becomes the challenge for Leicester. How do they prevent those connections to those guys that can outrun their slower central defenders? Well, the the big one then you have to consider in terms of those runs is the tracking of Conte, is the play of someone like Drinkwater, right? Those, right. those midfielders become extremely important in those battles. And and the runs from deep are really the big asset that Arsenal has. I think Giroud is a good forward. There's no doubt about that. He's a good target man. But the re- the reality is that most of the time when we've seen Arsenal score uh, for these incredible goals, it's because someone from midfield is making a run that is not tracked, whether it's Ozil, whether it's Campbell, whether it's Oxlade-Chamberlain, whoever it is, uh, Sanchez, of course, who we mentioned. So if those runs are tracked, I think, which Leicester has been doing a good job of lately, uh, using Conte and Drinkwater, uh, I think that's something that uh, that Ranieri will be looking at tactically. Yeah. If I were Wenger, what I would try to do is get Mesut Ozil on the ball in the wide areas in yeah. f- uh, behind Albrighton and Mares and force Simpson or Fuchs to come out and play him. Run, mm-hmm. run, run Giroud into those spaces and force the center backs to split and then bring Ramsey forward, bring, Sw- bring uh, Sanchez or Walcott in from the flanks and then try to isolate the central defender and the fullback that are left in that space. Like you said, the runs coming from midfield and that be- makes it even more important for Conte. What is his responsibility? He- is he going to be the one that's going to have to follow Mesut Ozil? If that's the case, Danny Drinkwater can't take yourself out of position because you have to be the person that picks up Aaron Ramsey coming from the midfield field if all that happens how quickly then can Leicester spring on an Arsenal team that has committed Aaron Ramsey forward and now has Matthew Flamini trying to de- protect their central defenders it's an it's a matchup yeah. that I wouldn't necessarily like for them and I think also about Leicester one of the things that I really love is that they like to play the ball quickly and directly yeah. and I love the I, I love the matchup of putting the ball into space to the right of Per soccer, having Jamie Vardy claim that ball and then having Mares come in from the other side and Okazaki come in and attacking the the near post. I would love that play if I were Claudio Ranieri. Absolutely. That that run that Vardy makes that is in between the defenders or on the other side of the defender where Mares plays the ball from 40 yards, 50 yards, whether it's on the, along the ground or over the top like we saw in the last game. those are That's the kind of run. And actually, now that you mention it, that's the exact goal that uh, that Leicester scored against against United where Vardy uh, broke the 
I think it was 13 goals in uh, 13 yeah, games. He tied, yeah, he, yeah. Uh, that was exactly the run that Vardy made. Morris played him in perfectly. Bang, goal. So that kind of run would be troubling for Murasaker. If I am, uh, if I am Wenger, however, I will still be showing Morris to the outside with the belief that first of all, you don't want Morris to cut on the cut inside because he's unstoppable once he cuts inside. Mm-hmm. If you let Morris go on the outside and you sort of believe that any cross that comes in, whether it's targeted to Okazaki, Ochoa, uh, or Vardy, the height of Murasaka will be able to get any overhead crosses. Mm. The the issue is the drag back because if there's a drag back, Murasaka doesn't have the the the, the leg speed to cut out, cut out any shot. So you need again, you need someone, uh, one of your de- defensive midfielders or your holding midfielders to track back to make sure that if if someone like Okazaki has cut across from the other side for the drag back, that there is someone to block him. So those are things that Wenger should be looking at. Yeah, I really like that too because I don't think Arsenal needs Nacho Monreal getting forward to win this game. I think that right. they can rely on that flank staying open for Mesut Ozil to exploit or getting the ball quick out there to Alexi Sanchez and giving him some chances to see if Danny Simpson is up to the task. I, I don't think they need Nacho Monreal to be effective on the attacking half of the field for them to win this game. And in that sense, he can kind of stay home and answer the what do we do with Mares problem. We saw City try to dedicate Fabian Delft to him. Didn't really work. Got burned in the third minute of that game, led to the first goal. This time they can just keep their fullback at home. Uh, and in that way, though, it goes back to something that Kartik and I talked about this weekend, just the pure ability to win one-on-one battles. I, I, right. I like, as much as anybody, I like Nacho Monreal's chances to at least keep up with Raheem, uh, right, uh, with Mares, as much as anybody could. Elsewhere, though, is Per Mertesacker, if he gets isolated with Jamie Vardy, is he any more likely to win that one-on-one battle? What midfielders are going to win that ball from N'Golo Conte that we didn't see City midfielders win last week that led to the second goal? When you go and look at these Leicester players that are consistently beating their man in one-on-one, get to the ball, 50-50 situations, who in Arsenal is more likely to win those battles than the players on City were last week? I mean, this brings me to my biggest tactical issue with Arsenal, Mm -hmm. which is if they play a high line in this game, the game is over. Because for two reasons. One, we know the pace of Vardy. We know the work rate and pace of Okazaki. That's obvious. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is Arsenal have been pushing up a lot with Mertesacker, which works in some games. But if you want to beat Leicester City in this game, you have to have a lot of space because Leicester will be well organized. So the more you push up your front line, the less space your midfielders have to work. So as long as Mertesacker isn't... So if you're pushed up to the halfway line when you're in control of the ball, you are set up perfectly to get scored on by Leicester City. Mm. So in that sense, I think if Wenger, and Wenger is a brilliant, brilliant manager, I firmly believe that he will not make what I consider would be a rookie mistake, which is to play a high line against Leicester City. Yeah. You know, you think about the goal, the first goal that City gave up, that great goal by Jamie Vardy, and you mentioned right. it earlier in the show, the pass that Riyad Mahrez had to play in order to put uh, Vardy in that situation, against Liverpool, sorry, not against City, yeah. uh, where Simo Mignolet was kind of caught off his line on that one. Surprise. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
one of the one of the things there that relates to what you just said is the fact that Riyad Mahrez had to play that ball. Uh, Liverpool was a bit a bit stretched, but they weren't at the point where they were so crammed up on the center line that somebody like a Christian Fuchs or a Danny Simpson could play that ball and make the connection. They had to connect through the midfield. Now, if that space in midfield gets so compact that a Christian Fuchs could play the ball instead of instead of uh, Leicester having to look for one or two passes before springing Jamie Vardy, well, that like you just alluded to, that plays into Leicester's hands a bit. So yeah, I think that is a good point. How high will they play that line, particularly given? Just how utterly important Jamie Vardy is to not only how Leicester scores goals, but how they alleviate pressure too. How they because that's you know that becomes the temptation, right, Richard? When you when you when you have seventy five eighty percent possession, which I'm sure Arsenal will have sixty percent possession in this game, you want your central defenders start feeling comfortable. They start pushing up. Suddenly they're at the halfway line, and then bang, counterattack goal. That's just it's just the just how. Leicester has operated so often in this game that surely Wenger will not fall for the soccer punch. Well, Nipun, for a show that maybe is notoriously too nerdy sometimes, I think we maybe just had two of the nerdiest match analyses that we've ever had on a previous show. But, I, but I'm really excited about these games now. Manchester City versus Tottenham is the late game on Sunday. Arsenal versus Leicester is the early game on Sunday. Your picks for these games? I'm going to go with... I'm going to go with Leicester in the Arsenal game, which mm-hmm. is crazy because I think Arsenal will win the league. Uh, and I'm going to go with a draw in the City versus Spurs game. Yeah, I'm go- You? <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this, but I think after picking things apart, I'm definitely going with Spurs in okay. in the uh, late game. I want to lean towards draw with Arsenal versus Leicester, but I can't believe I'm doing this. Leicester 2-1. to one. Oh my yes. god, that does, that does not feel good. I reserve the right to change my mind. Check my Twitter account sometime between now and Sunday. But come Sunday, go to worldsoccertalk.com. Check World Soccer Talk's Twitter account because our review show will be there. Myself, Kartik Krishnaya, Lawrence McKenna, walking through the 26th round of action in the Premier League, arguably the most important weekend between now and the end of the season. But until then, for everybody at World Soccer Talk, I'm Richard Farley. Nipun? Enjoy your futsal. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is LOZCAST, LawsCast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at WorldSoccerTalk.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.